Are you crazy about chihuahuas? Maybe you're wondering if a chihuahua is the right dog for you. Perhaps you have a training or behavior struggle. Well, look no further. Here you will find expert opinions, honest views, training and behavior advice, and much more on the Chihuahua Podcast. And now, allow me to welcome your hosts, Kate Masterton and Haley Miles. Over to you, ladies. Welcome back to the Chihuahua Podcast. We hope you're still with us after our little break. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Kate Masterton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Haley Miles. Hello. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, So, yes, we've had a little break after our last um, spate of guest interviews that we did. And we are back with a special summer edition of the Chihuahua Podcast talking to Amber Batson all about neutering. She's Amber Batson was one of our kind of dream guests. We've had a lot of dream guests, but she was one of our top sort of five dream guests, I think. Um, and it was a great it was a great it was a great opportunity to speak to her. It was and we may have hijacked the interview with our own personal questions. Oh yes. <laughs> but, <Sorry>. but we <laughs> But we know that the things that we want to know about are going to be things that our listeners want to know about as well. Such a big topic, isn't it, uterine? It's a huge topic. And, you know, um, there's so many myths surrounding neutering, And um, a lot of people aren't aware how it affects behaviour. And the interesting thing about one of the highlights for me when Amber was talking to us was it's not only the um, procedure, the operation, it's the actual, the whole experience and how that affects, potentially affects your dog in the long term. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a, it's a really interesting and complex topic, isn't it? Because you hear so many things from so many different people and it's just really great to talk to somebody that specializes in this subject yeah so amber is a vet and also she's a behaviorist so she's just she knows her stuff she's an expert on this she does a lot of talks about neutering so she was just like the the best person to have on and i hope or we hope that you know your quest your questions are answered when it comes to neutering yeah. And even though this was it was an hour interview, which wasn't enough time to cover everything, that <laughs> she has got a three hour webinar on the subject, which you can find if you've enjoyed if you do enjoy this episode, which I'm sure you will do. You can go and check out three hours of Amber Batson talking about the effects of neutering. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for joining us on the Chihuahua podcast. Would you be able to tell our audience a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, how you got started? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, I graduated from the Royal Veterinary College all the way back in 1999 and very quickly um, from going straight into working with dogs, cats, actually in mixed practice, um, so also some cows, some horses, um, decided that I was really interested in behaviour so within the first year of graduating, I started to undertake various behaviour qualifications because I noticed there were so many people coming into consultations who had behaviour related questions or perhaps what they were noticing about their pet was driven by behavioural change. Um, and so ever since really I graduated, I developed this strong interest in the subject and, you know, and that culminated in 2007 me setting up my own business understand animals 
where I provide um, education for owners, guardians and pet professionals to help them understand their pets a bit better. But I still work in clinical practice as a vet. I also work um, as a vet and behaviourist and I also work as a legal expert witness in court cases. Thank you very much. Amazing. Um, so this episode is going to be all about spaying and neutering and the UK is very pro-neutering and spaying country but other countries in Europe only spay for medical reasons. What are the pros and cons of spaying and neutering? Yeah so obviously great question and in fact <laughs> I have just come back from a trip to Norway and Norway is one of those countries where it's actually illegal to spay, uh, spay or castrate um, a, a dog um, unless the vet has given very specific medical reasons for that procedure to be carried out. So, yeah, so we are a country who's kind of not quite the opposite, but very different to that. You know, it's heavily promoted by the veterinary industry and within our culture and communities. Um, and so I guess the very first thing we need to say is what is the difference? Just really briefly so we understand, because I think lots of owners that I deal with are a bit confused about what phrase to use mm -hmm. so um and so we when we say neuter what we mean is that can apply to male or females neuter simply means to make the animal infertile so they're not capable of having babies or creating babies if you're or the male so when we think about neutering male or female dogs then in the female, what we're normally doing is we're talking about removing her ovaries, which, of course, are the egg containing part of the body. So she doesn't have the ability to um, produce eggs that that can be fertilized. We may or may not also remove the womb as well, the sort of baby carrying part of the body. Um, but we, we, we almost always, certainly in the UK, we always remove the ovaries just to stop that ability to produce those eggs in the first place. So that's what we mean by neutering a female dog. And so we might use the term spay, um, but the technical term is ovariectomy, which just means to remove the ovaries. And there's two of those in the vast majority of dogs. On the male side, neutering really is about removing the testicles. Um, there is an alternative to that, which is actually what we would do with human males, which is we can remove part of the tube which carries the sperm from the testicles out of the penis. Sorry about those technical things, but I'm a vet, so I'm quite comfortable using these phrases. So if it makes you a bit squidgy inside, then I apologise when you're listening. Um, but, you know, that's just a fact. So that's what happens. Testicles are producing the sperm and then there's this long tube through which that the sperm goes and then exits the body, obviously. And so in human males, we might chop out a piece of the tube um, so that that uh, sperm can't exit, exit the penis and, and therefore that's stopping that individual being um, fertile. And we can actually do that procedure in dogs. And it's starting to be done a little bit more, not so common in the UK, but in some other countries. Um, and in a moment, we'll probably talk about the hormones that are involved and why that might be the case. Standard in the UK would normally be female, remove the ovaries, maybe remove her womb at the same time. And in the male to do what we call a castration, which is to remove the testicles. Um, and when we think about pros and cons, gosh, it gets quite complicated. <laughs> so um, the most the most common reason why people are recommended to have their dog 
have their ovaries or the testicles removed is population control. So it's to stop there being an unwanted number of dogs in the population. Obviously, there are other ways of achieving that. And countries like Norway manage that. You know, they, the dogs are going to be kept on their lead if they're in season. Um, you know, they don't have, um, you know, males and females when the females on heat and um, having close contact. But they're a country who's got a lot more space than us. You know, we think about the density, population density in areas of the UK, and particularly our cities and towns, it's much higher than it is in Norway. So it's much harder for us to kind of obtain, attain that and still give dogs that off-lead important time. Another um, commonly recommended benefit is that it can reduce certain types of cancer. If you lose a body part, you can't get disease or cancer in that body part. So, you know, if I chop off my right arm, you can't see me, but if I hold up my right arm, yeah. um, if, you, if, if I chop off my right arm, then I'm not gonna get disease or cancer in my right arm. Mm -hmm. So if we remove the ovaries um, of the, the female dog or remove the testicles of the male dog, then they don't get cancer in those body parts. Mm -hmm. And if you leave them in, then there's a reasonable chance of getting cancer. It's not that high, but it can be an issue, obviously. There are other medical things. If you keep your testicles as a male dog for your entire life, you have a gland in your body, which is always there called the prostate gland. Many of you who are listening will have heard about prostate concerns in human males. Again, when males are over the age of 40, there's concerns about it becoming enlarged, potentially it becoming cancerous. Um, and that can happen in dogs too. And is enlargement is very likely to happen if you've not been castrated. Um, and, and cancer can also occur as well. And if we remove the testicles of the male, then the prostate doesn't become over large and we reduce the incidence of cancer. So kind of cancer reduction is a common, re common reason that's given alongside population control. However, more recently, there has been research which has also shown that removing the ovaries, removing the testicles, certainly earlier on in life, can predispose a small number of individuals to some diseases, some types of cancer, some types of joint problems, sometimes some organs not functioning properly, like the thyroid gland, as an example, um, and, and even um, having an impact on the immune system. So neuter dogs have a higher incidence of immune-related disease. So it becomes sort of a seesaw balancing act, really. Um, how many medical pros are we likely to get from this procedure and how many medical negatives could we get from this procedure? And that's mm -hmm. what's sort of getting us to a point now where we're starting to think about individualizing the approach to neutering. Rather than just saying all dogs should be neutered at six months of age, we've become way more specific and we're thinking about breed specifics. We're thinking about size specifics. So sometimes even within a breed, there can be quite a large range of sizes. Um, or if we're a crossbreed, of course, there can be a very wide range of sizes. And then also we even have to take it to the individual level because genetics, just like in human medicine, there are genes which might predispose some females, human females to a higher risk of breast cancer. And we're starting to get understand that, of course, that's going to be the case in female dogs as well. We're just not 
ready yet in our science. We haven't got that far yet to be able to do a genetic test to look at the individualized risk of something that's that specific, you know, but but that's but that's sort of where we're heading now is this more individualized approach to the neuter rather than just making a broad blanket policy decision. Um, it's it's like it's very this sort of notion that we should all dogs should be spayed or neutered because you know we they, they we want we don't want them to have babies and breed. We're not in the 1950s anymore, are we? There aren't any really stray dogs that kind of just mill about and do what they like. So there's also that aspect as well. We haven't really moved on from that, have we, very much? No, although it's it, it's complicated, isn't it? And and I guess perhaps yeah. in part because of my work as an expert witness, I'm involved in quite a lot of investigations into things like puppy farming. I get um, involved in a lot of things such as um, dogs and other animals being used in the fighting industry. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there are, we have more dog theft than we've ever had today. Mm. And entire dogs, dogs who have not been neutered, are at greater risk of theft than dogs that haven't. So mm. in a way, you're right, you know, the concept of the fact that, oh, well, my dog might come into contact with a sort of a free ranging feral stray dog, and therefore we're gonna get a population. Within the UK, that's incredibly well managed than it is perhaps in other countries mm. across the globe. But since the 1950s, we've also got a lot of other issues that have arisen. Yeah. Um, and particularly over, say, let's just say the last five to 10 years, dog theft has become a phenomenal issue. Puppy farming has become an even greater issue than it's ever been. And so a lot of thefts do seem to occur on entire dogs because then you know they're more valuable to enter a puppy farming industry or perhaps even a dog fighting industry. Mm -hmm. And whilst that's not something that thank goodness the vast majority of us are going to encounter it is of a concern um uh, but of course when a if we particularly look at the female dog how does somebody who approaches your dog when you're out on a walk know whether your female dog has been spayed or not they don't know obviously with the males if we're removing their testicles most of the time they can tell because they can take a glance because you can see <laughs> their testicles between their back legs um, and so they you know they have a better idea but, you know, there's so there's there's that S aspect of it as well, um, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're better at lots of things than we were many, many decades ago. Being responsible for our pets, being responsible pet owners and helping the whole country manage its population control is something I am sure we're better at than we used to be. And so therefore it does raise the question, do we need to use neutering as a blanket policy to help us maintain that? Yeah, yeah. Let's go toward, let's go into the Chihuahua. So studies have shown that there have been different, as you just sort of mentioned before, different health implications of spaying and neutering on various breeds. How has this, how has the Chihuahua fared in these particular studies? Yeah, so in a way, and I don't know if it makes it easier or more complicated for the Chihuahua, <laughs> but so the main piece of research that has looked at this was done by um, two scientists called Hart and Hart, H-A-R-T, Hart and Hart, and was published in 2020, so not very long ago. And they published some data, um, got a large amount of data to be fair, 
where they looked at 35 different breeds of dog. And then for those breeds of dog, they looked at the different incidences of potential disease um, that were seen within the entire population. So we haven't been neutered versus the neutered population. And in that study, neutering, again, was, was about having had their ovaries removed if they were female or the testicles removed if they were a male. And on, in the Chihuahua front, in that piece of research, it included over 1,000 Chihuahuas. So that's a reasonable number of Chihuahuas to have studied, yeah. to be fair. And what they did find was that there was no significant difference in joint disease. So if you were an entire, not been neutered, male or female, versus a neutered, I don't have my ovaries, I don't have my testicles, chihuahua, there was no significant difference in them developing joint related problems. And that's very different perhaps from a breed like the Labrador or the Rottweiler, where actually dogs who have been neutered at less than one year of age or 15 months of age, when they've been neutered in that earlier period of their life, they are far more likely to develop joint disorders later on in life, particularly hip problems, knee problems and arthritis. Mm -hmm. right? they, um, so that wasn't an issue for the Chihuahua. They also found that there wasn't a significant difference between them developing certain types of cancers. So again, for some breeds, um, they found the golden retriever as an example, um, the neutered dogs, particularly again, if they were neutered in the first year or so of life, they were more likely to develop certain types of skin cancer than the dogs who hadn't been neutered in the first half of their life. But that wasn't relevant for the Chihuahua. There was no significant difference in the development of other type of cancers either. They also found on the female front, one of the concerns, one of the negative things we sometimes see with removing, removing the ovaries, because our ovaries are producing our estrogen, one of the things we see in female dogs is an increased risk of urinary incontinence, often happening within months, but certainly within years of the spay. And that's because oestrogen helps to keep that sphincter tight. You know, the little door, which basically women of a certain age, like myself, start to appreciate a little bit more. The special door, which kind of allows us to keep urine in our bladder and not leak out at times when we wouldn't want it to. The door gets a little bit easier to open. It gets a little bit more leaky when you don't have longer term exposure to oestrogens. So again, normally dogs who are neutered um, before the age of 12 to 15 months have a much higher incidence of urinary incontinence um, at any point in their life than dogs who kept their ovaries and had a longer term exposure to estrogens. But interestingly, they didn't find that to be the case in the chihuahua. Okay, mm. now, oh, wow. what we have got to think about with the chihuahua though, um, and I'm gonna just, I'll talk about mammary cancer just quickly if I may, and, and then yeah. co and come back to it is what they found, and I think this is really interesting, so this was a significant thing for the Chihuahua, was that mammary cancer, so breast cancer, in the entire females in the study, the ones who did have their ovaries and wombs still in place, then that only got to 1%. Only 1% of all the entire female dogs had um, developed mammary cancer at some point in their life. Whereas those who were neutered between two and eight months of age actually had a mammary cancer risk of 4%, an incident of 4%. Wow. 
So actually, therefore, we're saying the neuter dogs had a slightly higher risk of mammary cancer than the female dogs. It's not huge. One percent to four percent as part of that population is not a large percentage of dogs because we're looking at over a thousand dogs. Yeah? yeah, but it's there's still of some relevance there, which might give us some reason to say with female chihuahuas, would it be an idea to neuter them after they've got to eight months of age, perhaps? But then we've got also that actually that's quite a low level of breast cancer in a breed. Now there could be a few reasons for that. Possibly one of the main reasons might be genetics. Perhaps, and, and this is true of the golden retriever as an example, golden retrievers as a breed have a much lower instance of mammary cancer than some other breeds. And it would seem that chihuahuas probably have a lower instance of mammary cancer. So is that a genetic thing? The other question that has to be asked, though, is how old are these dogs getting to? Are they really getting into their later ages? Because breast cancer, just like in female women overall, although I very much appreciate some women very sadly suffer from breast cancer earlier on in life. But it is something as a population of humans we recognize happens more later in life rather than in early life. And actually, mm -hmm. I'm afraid to say chihuahuas have a fairly low life expectancy. So in a study that was done and um, um, published in the same year, 2020 as well, somebody called O'Neill, they looked at over 11,000 chihuahuas in the UK and they looked at their life expectancy and they looked at their disease risk types. And what they actually found was the median age of death for chihuahuas is just over eight years of age. Now, I was quite mm. surprised to hear that. Mm, yeah. Because yeah? that so doesn't, you know, that, you know that, that seems quite low for a small breed dog. But that was in over 11,000 chihuahuas. You know, now, mm. female chihuahuas fare better. Female chihuahuas are more likely to get to around about 11 years of age, whereas male chihuahuas actually um, not so much. Um, and one of the reasons... Um, which might be part of that for the male chihuahua is, is related to a behavior thing we need to talk about in a minute about neutering, mm -hmm. which is the development of aggression. Aggression was noted to be um, a, a significant issue as a disorder in chihuahuas overall, but it was a higher issue in male chihuahuas. And they didn't then go into, well, what happened to those males with aggression? And of course we do appreciate in the behavioral world that actually aggression can be a fairly common cause of euthanasia for behavioral reasons. And that may mean that there the, the could be a possibility that the males were having slightly lower life expectancy because of the aggression and that leading to a behaviorally orientated euthanasia. Or perhaps there is a slightly greater um, issue with male chihuahuas and maybe heart-related disease or infections that follow, follow dental disease, periodontal disease, I'm sure as owners we know of chihuahuas, we've got a lot of crowding of the teeth in mm. the mouth, um, and, and perhaps some mineralization issues, um, so not having the strongest of teeth, which may most likely have a genetic component, and that basically might mean that perhaps male dogs are a little bit more prone to certain infections occurring in their body as well for some reasons. So, because chihuahuas as a small breed, as a, as a sort of, you know, a miniaturized breed are not living to quite the life expectancy that we might see in some other breed individuals, 
then the cancer risk will be lower as a result of that. So, you know, if we're thinking in, in many dogs, let's just pick on the spaniel, certain types of spaniel, we often aren't seeing breast cancer until they're maybe about 11 or 12 or 13. And yet their life expectancy is probably 13, 14, 15. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if we're, if, you know, a fair number of chihuahuas um, are actually only getting to somewhere between 8, 10, 11 years of age, well, maybe that's not that senior for their bodies. So we're seeing a lower instance of cancer, mammary cancer overall. Um, so there are lots of questions it raises. Um, and of course, it does. Some of that research has raised questions about the behavior of chihuahuas, which I think is important that we talk about that in relation to neutering. Um, and also, of course, other health risks that we're seeing with them as a breed. Absolutely fascinating information and, and really very surprising with those numbers, those ages. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So speaking of behavioural impact of neutering, how can that affect dogs, especially if they're already nervous? Because two hours can be tend to be highly strong or nervous disposition anyway. How does yeah. neutering impact that? Yes, well, exactly. So um Again, it can be quite individual. There's no doubt about it. And I mean, really on an individual dog to dog level. Mm. We have a a fair number of studies, tens of studies that have looked at neutering of male dogs in relation to behavior. And we've had certainly more than 10 studies of female dogs that have looked at behavioral um, changes in relation to neutering as well. None of them have been specific to the Chihuahua. Okay, so that's important we recognize mm-hmm. that. But they have between them looked at quite a variety of different types of breeds. And there, there is plenty of evidence that the neutral the, the removing of the ovaries of female dogs, the removing of testicles of male dogs can, in some individuals, increase their tendency towards fear. There has even been one study that was done in the Netherlands, I think it was in 2019, which looked at male dogs being castrated, where they found that at least 10% of dogs who were who were castrated, 10% of male dogs who were castrated, who had no behavior problems at the time of castration, quite quickly after castration, went on to develop fear-based aggression afterwards. That's a one in 10 risk. So, you know, and and that wasn't looking at a specific breed, although I'm not saying that they were including chihuahuas within that study. Mm. But overall, we talk about medical pros and cons, and we've started talking about that already. And then what we have to bring into the mix is we have to also bring in behavioral pros and cons as well. And one of the potential cons, it's not a definite, but it's a potential, is an increased risk of fear. And that may even occur in individuals who weren't showing fear-based tendencies before the operation. It's probably more likely to occur in individuals who are showing fear-based tendencies before the procedure, but it could happen in individuals who don't. We then have to start asking ourselves why, why Mm. that might be the case. That's quite complicated and I could spend an entire podcast, to be honest, discussing (laughs) that alone. So I'm gonna summarize it down to three Mm. main things. One, when dogs come into a veterinary hospital, we're a scary place for them to be. Chihuahuas in particular, being a really small little dog, it's quite fiddly to hold them 
and get access to parts of their bodies like their legs to get access to their veins. And so it does require some level of restraint. All, all dogs are going to end up being restrained in some way for them to have their front leg held um, or part of their body held so that we can place a cannula through which we're going to administer the, the um, anaesthetic. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they have received some medication before that, um, which helps uh, lower the total amount of anaesthetic dose that we need and has some an anti-anxiety and pain relieving components in it. We call that a pre-medication. And that's, they're normally given that as an injection under the skin, you know, quite quickly after they've arrived at the hospital. But they've got to be slightly restrained for that procedure as well. And that pre-medication isn't something that makes them unconscious or really not worrying about life at all, even if it does reduce their fear a little bit. So of course, then when we try and restrain this tiny little wiggly little dog, um, that's gonna be quite scary for a lot of them. Then we give them the anesthetic, we do the procedure, they wake up. If you've ever had an anesthetic yourself, you're disorientated, you're probably in some pain, it's quite scary. We wake up knowing what we've had done consciously. The dog, of course, doesn't wake up consciously knowing what's happened. So that's probably going to be quite scary for them. They're now in that unfamiliar place. They're surrounded by unfamiliar people. They can probably see and hear other unfamiliar dogs. And of course, never forget, they can smell unfamiliar dogs too. And at that moment when they're doing that, they are scared, disorientated and probably in a bit of pain. Then we've got to hold them again at some point to check that they are recovering okay, to check the wounds okay, and to remove that cannula. And we can get learning theory happening in that time. Basically, we become the predictors of scary stuff happening like restraint and pain or discomfort. And vets are people. <laughs> so we are unfamiliar people getting in proximity to them and causing additional fear and perhaps even discomfort and pain uh, mm. even with and you know it's not because we do it you know intentionally it's just a fact about having a surgical procedure at the end of the day um, yeah. but some dogs hang on to that memory not only in the veterinary context so of course we see some dogs coming back in after they have been neutered where they're now really scared and maybe they're even using defensive behavior to say to vets stay away from me I don't want the scary the pain the discomfort but some dogs generalize that as well to other unfamiliar people approaching them or touching them or interacting with them. And some dogs, of course, might even also apply that to the unfamiliar dogs that they could see, hear and smell that were in the clinic at that time. So yeah, yeah. that on its own could be enough to explain why some dogs after neutering develop some types of fears. There's also the loss of hormones, particularly in the male dog, because testosterone is there 24 seven. We know that testosterone is a confidence giving hormone. So when we take the testosterone away and that will be dropping within days of the operation, then that in its own for some dogs seems to make them more nervous. Female dogs, it's a bit more complicated because of course they only produce estrogens and progesterones twice or maybe three times a year they're not like us human women who are cycling regular you know sort of three four week intervals constantly from puberty until the menopause you know yeah. they have long gaps in between their seasons where they're not producing those hormones so you know maybe they fare a little bit better but it does also tie in with we've got to be very careful about when we neuter these female dogs Perhaps we don't want to be neutering them at a time when their estrogen levels are high 
and we take that estrogen away suddenly and we definitely don't want to be neutering them the time when they're after ovulation and they're in what we call the phantom pregnancy phase mm-hmm. the phantom pregnancy phase happens in every single female dog who has a season whether you see it behaviorally or not the hormonal change inside the female dog happens and it's driven by mm-hmm. a chemical a hormone called prolactin so weeks after they've finished their season so when they stop the bleeding they go into this high prolactin phase and they're in a hormonal phantom pregnancy and they're in that for several weeks some dogs show that and they show that by collecting up toys they are um, perhaps getting hungrier they are nesting they are even producing milk Whereas other female dogs don't show any of that whatsoever at all, but they are still in that high prolactin phase. And there has been some research that shows if we remove the ovaries, so we do the neutering process at that time, in those several weeks after they finish their season, they can get stuck in a long-term phantom pregnancy. And then for some female dogs, that can mean that they are more reactive to their environment, They constantly worry about resources. They're more hungry than they used to be. They're nesting, they're digging, you know, those sorts of things. Not, again, not for all dogs that we neuter in that situation, but for some, and we don't know what the risk factors are. So it's really, really important that we get the timing right. We don't want to neuter them perhaps when they're in the highest estrogen phase. So when they're in season, and we definitely don't want to neuter them for at least two, two and a half months after they finish their season. So the ideal time would be to wait at least three months from the day they finish bleeding before we do the spay to make sure they're out of that phantom pregnancy period of time. So then we've got two things. We've had two reasons. We had the learning theory that might can happen in the veterinary surgery with the handling. Even when we're lovely and kind and compassionate people, the chihuahuas don't feel like that, probably. And if they've come to us already a bit nervous of people because all humans are huge and chihuahuas are tiny, um, and, and then we've also got this loss of hormones that can drive increased fear after the spay. And then perhaps the last reason that we're starting to understand a little better is to do with the gut health. And that is that our gut contains millions of bacteria and those bacteria produce chemicals which very much influence our emotions and our behaviours. And for some individuals, again, not all, an anaesthetic certain medicines that might be given as part of the procedure like painkillers anti-inflammatories if they seemed necessary antibiotics might impact on the normal healthy gut bugs within that individual dog and maybe that drives some of the behavioral change so you know at least three reasons in why the procedure itself can result in increasing fear or changes in behavior post-operatively quite obvious now but I didn't think about because it's all about I do know I was aware that the sudden drop in testosterone for some fearful dogs can exacerbate their fear or reactivity but I didn't actually think I didn't actually realize that yeah it could be just because they've been to the vets and they've had this almost like traumatic experience Mm. and they are so small and it's just like a you know and one of the it's things that's a big thing that, for us, isn't it? But we know well, exactly. On. It's a huge thing for us, and we understand why we're going in, don't we? That's yeah. the big thing. Yeah. The other problem that we need to think about, um, which some of this research where I said we've we've looked at a variety of different animals 
um, the sort of different types of breeds um, in terms of their behavioral change is the timing of the neutering. So something that's come out of a few pieces of research is that um, sort of between six and 12 months of age seems to be one of the worst times to carry out the neutering, certainly of male dogs. And the main reason for that is that the majority of breeds, there may be some variations be because then that's slightly size dependent. The majority of breeds are in adolescence between six and 12 months of age. Now, adolescence is a time when actually we are way more sensitive to stress in our bodies. And so if we're more sensitive to stress and we have a stressful experience like going to the vets and having this handling and experiencing discomfort or pain, then, of course, that might make it even worse. It might make it something that those dogs' brains struggle with even more. So this is why really when we start to think about behavioural change that could be related to neutering, we start to think, OK, well, when is adolescence likely to be perhaps for an individual breed? And is it a really good idea to avoid neutering before adolescence? Let's let them get through adolescence. Because again, a couple of other pieces of research have started to show having testosterone present in your body when you go through adolescence, having estrogen and progesterone and prolactin, that phantom pregnancy hormone present for some of the period of time while you go through adolescence, probably has some beneficial impact on the brain development. And if you don't have those hormones present when you go through adolescence, that might have a mildly negative or perhaps even a moderately negative impact on your brain's development. So is it a good idea to let them get through adolescence and then think about the neutering? So we talked earlier about medical things and we said there's various breeds which, you know, wait at least 12, 15 months before we do the neutering because that's good medically. But on the behavioral side, you know, then we are now saying, well, maybe we need to get them beyond adolescence, which for some breeds of dogs won't happen until they're at least 12 or 15 months mm. before we neuter them. Smaller breed dogs do seem to go through adolescence quicker. Adolescence and puberty are not the same thing. And I don't want to complicate it too much because they seem like the same thing. Because when we think about becoming a teenager, we know it was also the same time when we started our periods or, you know, our voice dropped if we were a male and we went through all those kind of hormonal changes as our sex hormones kicked in. But actually, adolescence is a discrete event which involves lots and lots of change in the chemicals in the brain. So it's not just about the reproductive hormones. It's about a phase you're going to go through in your brain, regardless of whether you have sex hormones present in your body or not. And that's not as well understood in individual breeds yet as it could be. Our current understanding or thought process is small breeds tend to go through adolescence earlier in life than large breed dogs. Mm -hmm. But maybe in another few years time, we might start reviewing that a little bit better. But best we can at the moment, small breeds like the Chihuahua probably are hitting adolescence when they're around about five months of age. Mm -hmm. But of course, when they exit adolescence, we still don't fully know. But the guess would probably be at least eight or nine months of age. So, you know, probably right. for the majority waiting until they're at least eight or nine months of age, if we want to try to avoid the behavioral negatives might be the best thing that we can do. Mm -hmm. Certainly what we also want to do is individualize it further and think, 
is this chihuahua, this individual chihuahua, already showing any behavioral signs of a lack of self-confidence? Are they showing a lot of barking that might indicate fear? Are they showing lots of body language, the flattening of the ears, the head turning, lip licking, moving their body away from things um, that might indicate fear-based behaviors? going very rigid and still, what we call freezing for short periods of time? Are they perhaps showing other self-defensive signs like lip curling or growling or snapping behaviours? If they're showing any of that sort of stuff and we're thinking, oh, actually, we're moving towards a time when I might consider neutering them, we've got to stop and think about that individual and think, is this the right time to be neutering them? Do we need to make some changes to their environment? perhaps work with a qualified behaviorist or somebody who can help us identify the behavior issues and um, build that individual's confidence before we put them through that learning theory thing in the veterinary clinic, in that experience thing, before the hormonal change and before perhaps there's other complications to do with gut bug changes that might happen in the anesthetic and with the drugs. And that partly covers the part of our next question, which is, are there circumstances where you wouldn't recommend neutering? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So that, for me, is probably the strongest indicator, you know, of why I might delay a neutering. It doesn't mean to say I would say we we never do it, but it's about delaying and making an appropriate plan. So, you know, here we have maybe a chihuahua who's six or seven months of age, Um, And actually, when they come in for their preoperative check or we're just chatting with the the guardian of that chihuahua, we're hearing, well, yeah, no, they bark a lot. Now, I know people who are listening to this probably go, yeah, but that is something chihuahuas do. Um, You know, they do. They're quite yappy dogs. They're quite recognized as being quite yappy little dogs. Um, But we have to recognize that we know the smaller breed dogs are the most fearful. Lots of studies have shown this. And of course, it's not really a surprise because they are vulnerable and they are fragile. You know, when we think about a one and a half, two kilo, three, four kilo chihuahua versus a 70, 80 kilo human um, and the height of that dog on the ground compared to the height of the human, you know, the world is a big, scary space. Dogs in nature didn't really evolve to be so tiny. When we look at free ranging dog populations, they're typically somewhere between 15 and 20 kilos in size. That's very common, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the other big thing, of course, is freedom of choice because that's a huge what, one. <laughs> it, it's, it's a huge thing, isn't it? We can't feel safe if we're not in control of our own body and we can't make choices for ourselves. We feel threatened, we feel nervous, we feel anxious because we don't feel that we have control. We don't have agency of our own lives. And so one of the problems we have with the little breeds, totally understandable, is the fact that we feel the need to protect them because we might trip over them. They might get knocked over by a larger breed dog. Um, You know, traffic's a scary thing. Vacuum cleaners are scary things. You know, the stairs are a big challenge because they're designed for human legs, not chihuahua legs. Mm -hmm. Sofas are like climbing a flipping mountain. You know, and and as a result of that, we spend a lot of time with these miniaturized breeds, picking them up, picking them up, lifting them up, protecting them. But the, and that's understandable. And it may pro- provide protection in certain circumstances for those dogs. But it also often takes away their agency. 
takes away the ability for them to make choices for themselves and to actually feel okay. So when we think about behaviors like barking or behaviors like, uh, you know, lots of increased fear-based body language, that can come about because the dog just feels every, you know, I don't ever really get to make choices for myself, mm. you know, and, and finding the balance for that, for a tiny little dog like the Chihuahua in the real life world is complicated and challenging. So, you know, you listening to this, which is a wonderful thing as a Chihuahua guardian, you know, we've got to recognize, you, you know, if we put ourselves into a complicated, challenging situation and we've then got to develop, develop with a community of people, a specialized skill set to help us find the balance between, yes, making sure they're physically safe, that we make ramps up and down off of things or smaller stairs up and down off of things, and that we allow them to see the world at their own height in a more effective way. And they get to um, interact with other, with people and other dogs in a way that is safe and you know, protected for their vulnerable, fragile little bodies, but at the same time, not compromising their their sense of self, their control, their agency. And, and that that's a real challenge. And um, it's a wonderful thing that you've set yourself if you've set yourself up for a life with two hours. And we have to build our community to help support us to be able to do that. I absolutely love that. Yeah, um, because that small dogs, you know, small dog syndrome in quotation marks. Yeah. That's a huge thing. And there's this stigma of, uh, you know, trials being mean and nasty and thinking that they're bigger than they are. They don't. They know exactly how small they are. They just need to show a little bit more, don't they, in terms of like their defense, because they're, they, they just feel they do feel vulnerable. And they 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 know that they're that small. Absolutely. Of course, they know they're that small. You know, they've got eyes, got quite big eyes, haven't they? Let's face it. (laughs) And they've got noses and they've got wonderful ears. And, you know, they they can see and smell and hear and feel all this stuff all the time. And of course, they do get knocked over, don't they? And they do get trodden Mm. on and they do find it hard to climb on and off things um, because they're trying to live in a human world, not a tiny miniaturized dog little world. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's a huge challenge for them. And if therefore, by neutering we make that challenge greater for them because of it's hard to say for us practically for us to actually be able to get into a tiny little vein it's much harder to hit a tiny little vein with a cannula than a wonderful lovely golden retriever rottweiler doberman type of vein yeah you know and so you've got to be tight you've got to be really still and really steady and you know and actually then while we're trying to hold you still we can't squash you um, you know, so it, it, that that's challenging for the Chihuahua. And that might mean that restraint for the Chihuahua is, uh, you know, a more threatening thing than it often is for, for a Labrador or a Doberman, you know, all those type of breeds. So, yeah, you know, when they come into the clinic and, you know, everything's louder and bigger and scarier, that's going to be an issue for them, as well as the fact that they're going to lose some of those hormones, which help protect them against yeah. that. Yeah. And if and we've got to be mindful of the life stage in which we do that. Yeah, it's it's just not something to be taken lightly, spaying and neutering. It is a very big thing, isn't it? It's a huge yeah. thing. Absolutely and huge thing. People just a lot of a lot of child garden garden guardians, you know, just do it like a like a bit like nail clipping or something, you know, it's just and gotta be done. Let's make sure that we um are supportive of that for everyone who's listening here, particularly mm. those of you who've perhaps been through that before. 
you have not necessarily been given the right information in the past. The veterinary community, the dog world at large, particularly in the United Kingdom, has constantly, constant, constantly promoted neutering around about five or six months of age. Yeah. So I don't want anybody yeah. who's listening to feel guilty because they've done something like that in the past and then they think, gosh, actually, yes, my dog got worse after that. Or I don't think it helped my dog. Um, or literally, maybe I've only just had it done really recently. Now I don't know how to plan for my current dog. You know, don't please don't get overburdened with guilt about that um, because you've been doing it with the best advice you were given. The same extends to the veterinary community as well. If there's anyone mm-hmm. in the veterinary community listening here, this is not about a downer on the veterinary community. We have been doing within our profession what we felt with the information we had available to us at the time was the best thing to be doing. Um, But in the last, a lot of this evidence that I'm talking about has only really come out in the last four or five years, you know, and and we've had a huge number of studies looking at the medical consequences of neutering and now more about the behavioral consequences of neutering really since about 2018. Absolutely, yes, there have been some before, but they were a bit wishy-washy. They were few and far between. Since 2018, we've had a much bigger focus on it. And it takes time for that research, which has been published, to filter into the veterinary community, into the public domain, and therefore now allow us to start using that information to create better practice. Absolutely, absolutely. So for for spaying, are there different ways of spaying and why does this matter? Because I know that there's a couple of ways of spaying bitches. Yeah. So when we so when we think about um, if we think about female dogs for a moment and obviously we've just been talking about pros and cons of taking away the ovaries. Is taking the ovaries away the only option for rendering that dog infertile? Yeah. And or getting the benefits in relation to certain medical elements. So it is the most common thing to do is to remove the ovaries. We can, and there are um, countries in the world um, who have decided to do what we call ovarian sparing neutering processes. So that would be to leave the ovaries in place, but to take the womb away, because that will still make you infertile. The thing about that is that you're still gonna come into season so that does mean to say you're going to produce estrogens, you're then going to produce progesterone, you've got you've produced some eggs, but those eggs can't go anywhere. They can't, they've got nowhere to become fertilized and then house and develop into fetuses and beyond. But you're going to go through a phantom pregnancy as well. So we've got the, the kind of the complication with, with leaving the ovaries in situ is that you're going to have a female dog who comes on to heat. So you've still got that complication of bleeding around the house. You've got the attraction that might be unwanted by male dogs. And you've then got any complications about then going into a phantom pregnancy for the next two or three months. So for the vast majority of owners, ovary sparing surgery is not going to be the most ideal situation. From a medical perspective, if we've still got a dog who is cycling two or three times a year, they're producing estrogens and progesterones, et cetera. It means we don't get some of the medical benefits. So, you know, if this individual genetically is slightly more prone to breast cancer, then they're still going to remain very prone to breast cancer because we're exposing them regularly to estrogens. So 
you know, for most individuals, leaving the ovaries in isn't going to be the most ideal situation. Um, and, and that is on the female side, really, the only other option that we have. We can leave the womb in place, and that is being done fairly standardly in most um, it, most practices in the United Kingdom. So we're just taking the ovaries, we're leaving the womb in place. Why do we do that? Because it's a quicker surgery and it involves a smaller incision because the womb's a bigger part of the body, basically. Mm -hmm. The ovaries are quite small little balls. Um, and so they're quite easy to take out of a little, uh, a smaller hole. And the smaller the incision we make, the less um, healing there is to do, but also from a surgeon's perspective, the less we've got air entering the cavity while we're in theatre now of course we're in a theatre it's a sterile environment we're wearing masks and gloves and hats and all that stuff but there's still always going to be bacteria circulating so the bigger the incisions we make the slightly increased risk we have of the dog getting a post-operative infection mm -hmm. so nowadays we tend to prefer just removing the ovaries if we leave the womb in place the womb without the ovaries doesn't get up to anything doesn't change so we tend not to have a risk of infection in the womb or thickening of the womb like pyometra like pyometra the yeah. only time that's not so true is if the um the dog's already had a number of seasons before we do the procedure because if they've already had a number of seasons then that womb could already have become a bit thickened have a little bit what um like we're aware of in humans endometriosis and right. even without regular estrogens, that could still go on to develop an infection later in life. So it's it, at the moment, the fairly common thing to do is if the dogs have perhaps two, three or more seasons, we probably remove the womb and the ovaries. If they've had no seasons or one season, maybe two seasons, then we probably just remove the ovaries and leave the mm -hmm. womb in situ. That's our options for our females. We don't really have any other options only other thing which I know you would want to ask me about otherwise is keyhole surgery do we do the procedure for the females by keyhole or what I call manhole now manhole is not the most appropriate uh, <laughs> uh, term but it but it's to give that concept that obviously when we think about manhole covers and lifting them up that's kind of what we're doing we're making a bigger incision that's the big difference between keyhole and non-keyhole in keyhole, we're making quite small incisions to insert sterile tubes through which we have a camera and instruments in which we can go in and remove the ovaries and maybe on occasion in a little dog like the Chihuahua, possibly even the womb as well. Um, the, the problem with the Chihuahua with that, well, it's not really a problem, but the, the instruments, the, the, the tubes that we have to put in, the camera we have to put in, they're a standard size. We can't have chihuahua sized instruments versus Labrador sized instruments. They're standard. And so actually for little dogs like chihuahuas, the size of the holes that we make for keyhole is probably not really substantially different than if we do it in the middle of the abdomen, what I'm going to call manhole. Our manhole cover is going right. to be is going to be <laughs> not really that much difference in size. So there is still some controversy over keyhole as well, um, which I'm not going to go into any detail about. But basically to do keyhole, to be able to see inside with that camera, we have to inflate the abdomen with a gas. 
Mm. Um, and the inflation of the abdomen with that gas so that we can get the, you know, all the guts and you know, all that yucky, sticky stuff inside. Um, we can move it away from our camera so we can actually see what we're doing. Um, that can cause inflammation in the abdomen and can be mm. an uncomfortable thing for some dogs after the surgery. And and it also can create some complications with some dogs with certain anaesthetics as well. So yeah. there is still some controversy about whether or not keyhole surgery overall is for the majority better than manhole surgery. Mm -hmm. There are some individuals who think, no, I'm really convinced keyhole is better. There are other individuals and bits of science that say I'm not so sure. When we've got a little dog like the Chihuahua, given the small size of the manhole incision, Please um, put that into context if you go to your vets and say, I want manhole surgery. Please, um, <laughs> please, yeah. say, please perhaps say to them, oh, it's this funny vet. And she just used it as a silly phrase to explain the difference between keyhole and non-keyhole, um, just so that we could grasp it in our heads. Um, but yeah, so probably for chihuahuas, keyhole surgery isn't going to confer enough benefits over non-keyhole surgery. Right, that's but, that's but actually that is awesome. a conversation to have with your vet because it yes. might depend on the size of your chihuahua um, and other factors. Yes. So just just very quickly, um, so this one here, this this is my dog Bo's a little painting. Bo is um, mainly chihuahua, but a little bit terrier, so she's not tiny, tiny, but she's still quite small. She's four kg. She's just turned, oh, she's just about to turn eight, or she's just turned eight. Um, and I had her when she was about a year old. So, but I, I've been debating whether to get in a spade or not. Um, and mainly because of the, I don't want her to get the pyometra basically. Yeah. So for her, because she's had quite a few seasons, then definitely take everything out. We would normally. The other way around, the other thing that we can do, and it depends on the vets and the clinics and their facilities, is that we can assess the womb and we can decide whether the womb is really super healthy and is safe to be left inside. And the way we would do that would be through ultrasound and perhaps also an internal endoscopy where we put a camera up inside the womb. The difficulty with doing that with a chihuahua is they are so tiny. So assessing mm -hmm. a tiny womb on ultrasound and a tiny womb on a camera internally is not something that's really easy. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're dealing with a real reproductive specialist, they're probably your average general practice clinic is going to find that quite tricky. And they'd probably say it's just safest to take the womb out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just don't want to, want to leave it too long because, you know, she's, she's not young, young. No. Now, pyometra mm. is treatable. I don't want people to think it isn't treatable. Mm. However, the big problem we have with most pyometras um, is that most pyometra occurs after a dog's had their season um, and they've gone through this sort of phantom season period of time is when they're in that, that phantom period of time. The, um, the body now thinks it's pregnant. That prolactin hormone I mentioned is, is telling the body um, and brain that I'm pregnant right now. So the cervix closes really tight because it doesn't want that pregnancy to be disturbed by things which come up through the vagina um you know or could cause you know um the, the fetus the fetal fluids or stuff being being impacted by an open door out into the outside world mm -hmm. so the cervix is closed and that's our problem with pyometra is that now if we get an infection during that period of time 
And it's more likely to happen at that period of time because estrogens and progesterones, which have just come and they've just been really high, weaken the immune system a little bit. They make you more prone to infections. If any bacteria had got in in that time and now the door has closed, well, basically, we've created this wonderful, comfy room for bacteria to live in and they can't escape. There's, because the cervix is tightly shut, then, you know, that room is just filling and filling and filling with pus. Um, you know, and infection. And we don't know that's happening until it gets so much that the dog develops blood poisoning, septicemia. And the dog is now quite toxic and quite sick. And then you see that because all of a sudden, in a few hours, the dog is lethargic. They maybe, they maybe vomit once or twice. They get diarrhea. They just seem really poorly. They don't want to eat. But actually inside, they're now really, really ill. And taking out, and I'm sorry to use this phrase, it's going to be a bit gross, but that bag of pus from inside the abdomen is a surgical nightmare because mm-hmm. it's been stretched and it's a thin, thin lining and it wants to burst. And if it bursts into the mm-hmm. abdomen, then we've got a real serious problem. Mm-hmm. I've seen a, quite a few pyometra ops. Yes. And, and some dogs do get a pyometra and they get a discharge. They get a mm-hmm. smelly discharge. They've got a smelly discharge. It means the cervix is slightly or fully open. And that actually can be treated with antibiotics. But that is not anywhere near as common as it happening in the time when the cervix door is closed, you know, some weeks, several weeks after the season. And of Mm. course, that makes it, yeah, a really, really serious medical and surgical emergency. So would that be a closed pymetra? Yes, what we call And the open would be the discharge. Yes, exactly. That you would see, yeah. And I mean, sometimes we get a discharge, um, but the discharge is minimal compared to what's actually going on inside yeah. the womb. Again, most veterinary practices today would probably do an ultrasound scan quite gently to see, is this pus, you know, is this a, if we've got a discharge and we've got, you know, and, and therefore we are draining a bit, how full up is that womb? Because if there's not a lot in that womb, maybe this is a case for treating the dog with antibiotics, at least Mm. until the dog is feeling better in themselves. And maybe then we think about doing the spay, you know, but obviously if um, we've got discharge and actually it's just because it's sneaking through a partially open door, um, then actually we might have quite a lot of pus inside and Mm. and that dog possibly needs to go to surgery quicker because antibiotics aren't going to resolve that. No, I um, I did a lot of voluntary work at vets when I was at vets, and it was there was a lot of quite a few pyometras, and there was it was always an emergency. Yeah. And it's always things have moved me. on a little bit more now in our yes. medicine today, um, which is why I'm saying on very very on some small number of occasions where they are treatable, but they do tend to leave behind a scarred, thickened womb, which means it's more likely to happen again in the future as well. Ah, right, okay. You know, so obviously, so that is you know, even if we can get them better medically probably we ought to be removing it anyway yeah um males and that was the other thing we were going to talk about males then weren't we in terms of options for males and I've already talked about vasectomies um so you know if the loss of testosterone and the loss of confidence giving hormone is an issue for some male dogs could we do a vasectomy rather than a castration we could do it's not being done that commonly in the UK um, and, I, and, and I would anticipate from having done it myself very many long, many years ago on pigs, um, it's not the easiest of surgical procedures. It's quite fiddly and therefore on a little dog like a chihuahua, probably quite technically demanding. I'm not going to lie. So, you know, where vets aren't already confident doing it in a larger breed dog, they're going to be probably very less, very unconfident in doing it in the male dog. 
So castration probably does remain at the moment the most um, kind of common, as in removal of the testicles is the way we're going to do the procedure. If we want to see what impact that procedure might have on that male dog, something that we might consider doing now is to do a chemical castration first. A chemical castration is where we give a chemical, an injection to the dog, which is an anti-testosterone type of medicine. And within two or three weeks of putting that into the dog, it goes in as a little slow release implant under the skin. So it's an injection that goes under the skin, just like putting in a microchip and it releases this anti-testosterone medicine. We have two versions of it, one of them which can last normally between four and six months, or one which tends to last more like nine months. So normally if we're doing it for the first time, we put in the four to six month one, and it's slowly releasing this anti-testosterone medicine. So over a number of weeks, we just get a total loss of testosterone production from the testicles. It's like doing the procedure, but without them having to come in and have all that handling stuff that we talked about and without obviously having the anesthetic, which might have some impact on some dogs as well. So now what we've done is we've only removed the hormonal element. And so if we then get a change in their behavior in a negative way, they become more barky, more self-defensive, more growly, even perhaps a bit aggressive, then definitely castration is not the way forward for that dog at that time in their life. Behaviour mm. modification with a qualified professional might be an option, meaning that we build their confidence, we can change their perception of life, then we might be able to consider it later on if it's mm. a necessary thing. The, the, if we get that behavioural change with the implant in place, it is technically possible to remove the implant. Um, I don't actually know anyone who's done it. I'm not going to lie, but the drugs company um, do say it is a feasible thing to do. The dog does need, will need sedating and they'll need some local anaesthetic putting into the skin. We'll have to be able to feel where that implant is, but we should be able to make a very small skin incision and then get the implant back out from under the skin. And then we should be able to get reversal. But worst case scenario, if we can't do for that for some reason, if we've used the shorter term implant, then those symptoms are going to wear off in four or five months as the implant wears off anyway. So we just need yeah. to protect the dog and try and build their confidence and help their fragility during that time yeah so absolutely. that is an option that we can use um, and and maybe that's sometimes if we're not quite sure what impact uh you know removing the testicles can have on a dog can be a really good thing to do yeah and then in conclusion how do we make a plan <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly so well, you know what do we do you know we've got a dog, yeah. a dog male dog who is currently entire they've got all their bits in their places where they should be what should mm. we be thinking first of all we should be thinking are, are we able to keep them safe and be and have good responsible pet ownership that stops male dogs mating with female dogs female dogs having sex with male dogs as they go through that first elements of puberty and so that we can hopefully wait until they are in late adolescence or even early adulthood, ideally eight, nine, maybe even 10 months old as a chihuahua before we do the procedure. That probably is the best thing we can do for the majority of them. There are male dogs who perhaps they get to five months old, they've had a surge of testosterone and they are really driven by that testosterone and they're frustrated by the fact they're not able to go out and find females and explore the universe and have sex 
And that frustration can cause negative behavioral change. They get ratty, they get raggy, they're howling, they're stressed, they're pacing, they're whining. In those cases, obviously, the first thing we might think about doing is putting in the implant and just making sure that the implant does get rid of those signs without then causing additional negative signs. Yeah, that might be the most obvious first thing to do. If, you know, those, those male dogs aside, probably best, you know, to see if we can wait until they are eight, nine, ten months of age for both medical reasons, but definitely for behavioural reasons, the, the proofing, the boosting of the brain until it gets through adolescence. Be planning ahead then and then talk to your veterinary practice about this. Talk to them about what will happen on the day. Talk to them about the recovery. Talk to them about the, the potentials for keyhole. You know, is that an option for your chihuahua for any reason? Does it confer benefits over what I'm going to call manhole, non-keyhole surgery? And the same for the male. After they've had the procedure, they're going to come home on the same day, but they've got a wound and we've got to stop them licking and chewing at that wound. And unfortunately, we all know what dogs are like when they've got a wound on their body. They want to lick it because they feel that their saliva can help heal it quicker. But unfortunately, their saliva, particularly in the chihuahua, who does suffer with more periodontal disease than other than, than other dogs, um, you know, can put bacteria into that wound and they're going to get an infection. So typically what we'd be doing after the operation is we'd be getting the dog to wear a bodysuit, a vest that poppers up at the back so that the, the incision that's underneath them, be male or female, is covered over so they can't lick at it. Getting them used to the sound of the poppers, getting them used to wearing a sort of T-shirty, vesty type of thing. Let's face it, you chihuahua guardians, you're pretty good at that sort of stuff, most <laughs> of you, unless you've got long haired chihuahuas, of course. Um, so making sure we gradually got them used to the concept in the months or weeks leading up to that procedure so that they're going to feel comfortable wearing that suit afterwards can be a brilliant thing to do. Make sure you've spoken to your practice. Are they using body suits? We don't want the dog coming home in the cone of doom, the Elizabethan collar, because they're stressful. You know, and some dogs cope with them, but many don't. So avoiding the Elizabethan collar where we can is better. Body suits work very well for neutering. If the dog's got an eye ulcer, they've had head surgery, sometimes the cone of doom has to come out, unfortunately. But in neutering, that's really quite rare. But then, so a plan for the time, thinking about post-operative rest and sleep, how you're going to exercise them, thinking about enrichment that you can do because we don't want them running around and spinning. So have we got things like new toys, go to car boot sales, go to charity shops, get them new sniffs and new smells that are very, very cheap and that each day they meet two or three of those new items, either in your garden, in a spare room, if you're in a, if they're a house type dog, so that they can explore and, and, you know, and move around slowly in their environment without, you know, it being boring. Lots yeah. and lots of post-operative things that you can do. But most, most importantly, is chat to ideally have a pre-operative consultation with probably one of the nurses in the practice. You know, they're often less rushed than the vets are. They've often mm -hmm. had a bit more behavior related training than some vets because the vets obviously have a lot more medical surgical training. And as a result of that, they're the ones who probably be able to say to you, OK, let's talk about how your chihuahua is behaviorally. Is this the best thing or not for this individual? And if they say, you know, actually, I don't know, or you have a gut feeling that your dog is nervous because they're barky or they're snappy 
or they freeze a lot or they do all those things that we might see you know scared dogs do then perhaps think about contacting a behaviorist or a vet behaviorist for a pre-neutering consultation rather than just lying relying on your general practice vet you know vets mm. so that we can make the right plan in terms of is this right for this dog at this time if not when are we going to review that and then with that individual practice how is it going to happen on the day what's going to happen when my dog comes comes home how have i prepared my dog for that and how am i going to facilitate maybe one two three weeks of rest afterwards so that it's not frustrating for the for the dog yeah. yeah really good really really good advice amazing preparation is key isn't yeah. it i think Absolutely. our listeners will our listeners will really really benefit from that won't they hope so I think so. Absolutely. There's a lot of information for them there. So we hope you've enjoyed that episode with the amazing Amber Batson. We got so much out of this episode and we were we were busy scribbling notes. So if you'd like to find out a little bit more about Amber and her work, then uh, we are going to put um, the information down in the show notes and don't forget if you love this episode don't forget to follow subscribe like the page the chihuahua podcast and leave us a five-star review see you next time bye